this series, we're looking at the place of women in the Bible. And in particular, I want to focus on some of the more difficult instructions that the New Testament has with regard to women. Now, last week, what we saw that Christian wives or wives in the early church were just simply no different to any other wife in the ancient world. For everyone in that time, life was a struggle. Uh, your priority was figuring out how to keep, how to stay alive, how to feed the kids. And so there was no exceptions to that. Everyone, whether you're Christian or not, was facing the same struggle for survival. And it was a team effort. Every single person in the family was responsible for the family's well-being, including the wife. And so everyone had a role to play. Everyone had a task to perform in order for that to happen. And so that was the role of women. It was just to keep the family alive, play your part, do your very best. And that's really the only option that you had. But I want to look now at a couple of more, I guess, controversial passages, certainly controversial by the standards of the 21st century. And this week in particular, I want to look at that very well-known verse in Ephesians 5.22, which says that wives must submit to their husbands. Now, I want to ask the question, is that still applicable today? What is is that specifically just for the women? Is this something that all women in all places must live by? Because if it is, it becomes a little bit problematic. It's, it's one of those verses that is often brought up as a reason to question the Bible at the very least, and in some cases to simply reject it. How can we uh, accept or how can we live by a text that would just be so ancient and so backwards in its instruction, especially for women? So this week, we're going to take a closer look at this particular passage and really just see what's going on with this verse. Is it saying that all women in all places everywhere must submit to their husbands, or is there something deeper going on? Well, that's what we're going to look at this week. Now, the reason why a verse like this is so controversial, or it certainly is quite confronting to somebody today, is because in the 21st century, and certainly in our Western culture, this is a more difficult idea. The idea of a wife having to submit to a husband, it really flies in the face of what we take for granted as being uh, equality, uh, marriage being egalitarian, and um, the idea that there is no, uh, there's, there's, there's no sense of hierarchy within the sexes. This is just, we just don't think this way in our particular context. And so when a verse like this comes along, we at the very least assume, oh, well, that's just very old fashioned. Um, but at the worst, we just think that's, that's abusive. That's terrible. That's something we simply can't tolerate within our culture. But as with everything, that's our context. That's our particular worldview. That's, we we hold that view just by default. And so when something runs up against that, it troubles us. It, it jars us. We, we, it really stands out in, uh, to, to our thinking. But as with all things, they have to be understood within their context. This is a 2,000-year-old instruction to a time and a place very different to our own, as we're going to keep saying this and reiterating this in this particular podcast. And so the question we really have to ask is, how would it have been heard by a woman in the first century? 
what would their response have been to this? And to in order to answer that question, we have to understand what life was like for a wife in that time. Now, again, we've already talked about, generally speaking, what your everyday life was like. But what about the role of wife or how they saw themselves or understood themselves within that time? And it, more especially, how did the husbands understand their role to be and how did they understand their their wife's role to be? What was their worldview? What was their ideology that informed the way that they approached their marriage? How did they see each other's role? And especially, how did they see each other's place within that marriage situation? Well, that's what we need to understand first in order to then understand what's going on in this verse and and to see what sort of message or, or what sort of uh, instruction can be taken from it if we're going to apply any of it to our world today. So the first thing we're going to do is to just take a closer look at the ideology around marriage or the expectation around marriage and especially the expectation around wives. So in order to do that, we need to go back and look at some ancient writers. We need to get a sense of of how the ancient philosophers and the ancient thinkers uh, taught or, or understand marriage to function. And that's what we're going to do first in this particular episode. So I want to begin with a letter. This is a letter from a guy by the name of Pliny. Now, we've met Pliny before. Uh, Pliny was the one who was writing to the Emperor Trajan, asking what to do about these pesky Christians in his district that were just refusing to worship the Emperor. Well, he wrote lots of letters. And in this particular one, he's writing a letter to his mother-in-law. Now, Pliny is getting old by this stage. He's probably in his 50s, maybe even to his early 60s at this point. And he's just remarried. Uh, he's been married a couple of times and this is his latest wife. And it's not that he's a philanderer. It's not that he's just constantly getting himself new wives. Um, his previous wives have died. Uh, it was very common for women to die in childbirth. And so it was not unusual for a man to marry and remarry um, several times through the course of his life. Now, when a man remarries, he's not going to be marrying a woman his own age because there are just no women available that are going to be your own age. Women are married young and all women are going to be married, except in the very, very rare instances of women who are wealthy enough that they don't have to get married, but otherwise everybody else is getting married and they're staying with their husbands. Um, that's So you're not going to get a lot of available women your age, what you're typically going to do is remarry a single woman who is very young. Um, You're going to be marrying women in their teens because those are the only women that are going to be available. So here's Pliny in his 50s, maybe early 60s, remarried to a very young girl, maybe around the age of 12. Now, this is kind of a remarkable thing. We've actually found the um, the tombstone of this particular wife. Uh, it's in it's on display in Rome. It's actually the the very young wife of Pliny, and it says that she's aged around around the age of twelve. It's 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 quite remarkable that piece of evidence that we have. But nevertheless, he's writing to his um, to his mother in law. Uh, to, sorry, to um, yes, to his, to his mother-in-law, so the, the mother of this young woman. So we have to imagine that even that this mother-in-law is younger than Pliny. Now, it's all sounding so gross and so horrible. Um, again, it's a very, very different time in the first century to, to today's world. But nevertheless, he's right into this 
stepmother of his to really praise her for the incredible job that she's done raising this girl. And just, again, some context to this, the role of the woman is to become a wife and therefore the role of the mother is to help train her girls to become good wives because that's all they know. They don't have another education. Their job, as we saw last week, was running the house. And so if you're going to keep any of the girls, you're going to raise them to be good wives. Uh, And that's actually something that abounds to your credit, uh, having raised good daughters yourself. So this is um, this is him giving thanking this woman. Hey, hey, thank you've done such a great job with with this wife of mine. So anyway, he says to this mother-in-law, talking about his new bride, he says she's got a sharp wit. She is wonderfully economical, and she loves me, which is a guarantee of her purity. Now notice that she loves him. There's no mention of him loving her. Because the goal of marriage was never about love. The goal of marriage was concordia. And if there's going to be any love, well, it's not really going to be reciprocated. Now, again, as in all human relationships, love will inevitably form, but it's not expected. And in this case, it's the love that she's demonstrating to him. Now, what you're, what he's about to describe, I wouldn't necessarily call love, but for him, this is what he understands as being quote-unquote love, is just her simple devotion to him as a husband. So because of this love, he knows that she's not going to sleep around. She's, it's a guarantee of her purity and her faithfulness to this marriage. Moreover, owing to her fondness for me, she has developed a taste for study. Now, one of the jobs of the husband, if he, if he had any education, was to educate his wife. This is what the, uh, the elite husbands are expected to do, is to train their wife, give them some sort of education, but only their own education, which is why it seems so controversial of wives going to a church and receiving education from other men, men who aren't their husbands. That in and of itself was, was problematic. So he says she's developed a taste for study, but look at what the study is. She collects all my speeches. She reads them and learns them by heart. When I'm about to plead, what anxiety she shows. When the pleading is over, how pleased she is. She has relays of people to bring her news as to the reception I get, the applause I excite, and the verdicts I win from the judges. (laughs) It's fascinating. So she's got this newfound love of study, but all of the materials, all of the books that she reads are his. (laughs) So it's not, we're not talking about she's gone and got this love of all of the different philosophers and all of the different classical texts. No, no, no. Her education is just whatever I teach her, either through word or through my written speeches. That's it. (laughs) So her entirety of her education is just more of me. (laughs) She, in fact, she loves my learning so much that she even memorizes my, my speeches That's how much she loves learning. It's just all me all the time. And when I speak, when I actually give speeches, she's my number one fan. All she wants to know is the, the applause that I get, the excitement that is riled up because of my speeches. Now, for her, there's the honor of being married to a famous orator. That's that's to her credit. But again, everything about her is devoted specifically to him. He says, whenever I recite, she sits near me, screened from the audience by a curtain, and her ears greedily drink in what people say to my credit. So she keeps herself out of sight 
Um, she doesn't want to be seen publicly, but all her focus is on is not just what I'm saying, but what people are saying about me. Because again, it's all about me. <laughs> she even sings my verses and sets them to music, though she has no master to teach her but love, which is the best instructor of all. So she even writes songs. Now, she can't sing to save her life. I mean, when she sings, she sounds like a cat's been tortured. But that's not the point, because what she sings about is me. She writes songs about me, because of her love is all about me. Hence, I feel perfectly assured that our mutual happiness, and there's that word. We talked about that word concordia, uh, this, this idea that a marriage was about alignment in your thinking. It was about a mutual outlook, mutual focus, this word concordia, or in the Greek, the word homonoia, where we get the word harmony from. Well, when we translate that concordia into English, it translates as mutual happiness. So I'm assured that our concordia will be lasting and will grow, uh, will continue to grow day by day. For she loves in me, not my youth, nor my person, both of which are subject to gradual age and decay, but my reputation, my honor. Remember, the idea of the husband is that the family is a means by which he gains honor for himself. The, the quality of his family, the goodness and the, um, the obedience of his family, it reflects on him. He gets the honor from that. This is how he makes a name for himself in society. And so what he loves about his wife is that she loves his honor. She does everything to be a good wife so that people think better of him. It's all about him. So I, I think you're starting to get the idea of the most important player in the marriage. In a typical ancient marriage, the, the worldview, the ideology is that he's the most important person. He's the center of the whole organization. And so everything around him needs to be focused on making him look better. And so why is she such a fantastic wife? How does he know that he loves her? Because she loves his reputation. It's all about him. So this is the ideology. This is the expectation of a wife. Why is he writing to his mother-in-law? Well, because she has the she's the one who's taught his her daughter to do this. She, as the mother, has instilled these values into the daughter so that when she does get married, this is what it looks like. This is the sort of wife that she's going to become. And in the eyes of every Roman man, this is the ideal. This is what you're looking for in a wife. You're looking for a woman who is all about you. So this is, the, this is what we're, we're looking for. This is what's expected. And this is the default assumption. When I talk about an ideology or a worldview, what I'm talking about is that this is the idea that you're swimming in. You don't know any differently. To, to say to a Roman man, um, you know, wives should be independently powerful and seeking their own careers. And it's just it's an affront. That's not how the world works. The, the, this, this is the ideology. This is like saying to a fish, hey, you're swimming in water. I and mean, what are you talking about? I'm just existing. This is what they expect. So Pliny has a bit to say about this, but the one person who has a lot more to say about it is a guy by the name of Plutarch. Now, Plutarch was a very famous Greek philosopher. He lived um, sort of, he, he was active sort of the second, second half of the first century, so a little bit after Paul, but still very relevant, still very much a part of Paul's context. 
Now, he, he writes lots of things about lots of different topics. He's a philosopher. The idea of being a philosopher is that you know everything there is to know about absolutely everything. And so he's got a bit to say about marriage. And he writes this particular essay. And you just to get a sense of the setting of this essay, he writes it to a young married couple. And what he's writing to them is the ideals of marriage, what, what is expected from either of the parties within the marriage. Now, what you notice when you're reading it is that actually everything is directed at her. <laughs> All of the instructions go towards her because she's got the most to learn about what's expected of, of being the person in this marriage. But this particular essay, um, this might disturb you a little bit, but the way that it was presented to this couple was that it was read to them as they were in their marriage bed. Now, obviously, we would have to assume it was read out before the consummation took place. Otherwise, they wouldn't have been able to focus on what the philosopher was saying. But nevertheless, the uh, this essay was read out to them in their bedroom um, before the whole marriage really got going. And so it was all of these instructions that he lays out, again, particularly for the wife, what's expected of, of her in and her role in this particular situation. So a, couple, a number of things he says to her. And this one, just to begin with, he says, whenever the moon is at a distance from the sun, we see her conspicuous and brilliant, but she disappears and hides herself when she comes near him. Contrarywise, a virtuous woman ought to be most visible in her, hus in her husband's company and stay in the house and hide herself when she is away. Now, what's really good about Plutarch is that it doesn't need unpacking. That's pretty clear what is expected of this virtuous woman, um, that the only time she should ever be seen in public is when she's out with her husband. And that's it. Now, again, this is an ideal. Of course, you're going to find women out in public by themselves, but it's not ideal. We shouldn't, you shouldn't really be out there unless you've got a really important business to attend to. You should be back at home. That's where you belong. Your place in the family is in the business and it's back at the house looking after things around the house. And when you go out in public, you run the risk of looking bad. So maybe don't be there, be back where you belong in your particular uh, household context. Again, he says, whenever two notes are sounded in a chord, the tune is carried by the, by the bass. And in like manner, every activity in a virtuous household is carried on by both parties in agreement, but discloses the husband's leadership and preferences. So here's the ideal. Again, it's you, you, you're at home, you're doing your duties back at home. Now, again, this, there's the functional role that she has in the household looking after the things of the house. This is what is expected of the woman. So practically she should be there anyway in order for the business to operate. But ideologically, that's also where she belongs and that's where she should always be, not out in public because the questions are going to be raised over her. Why are you out in public when you should be back at home looking after the household? But here again, there there is a unity between the two. There's a concordia that is expected between both parties. But like in music, the bass sort of carries the, well, I don't know really anything about music, but bass, the bass sort of carries the, um, the rhythm, I guess, or it, it sort of has certainly a dominant 
role to play within music in the same way that a husband does. It, it requires other things around it for it to make sense, but it has that more important task. Well, in the same way a husband has um, the same sort of role, the same sort of um, prominence within that musical melody. Again, sorry if you're a musician and I've just completely insulted you. I have no idea what I'm talking about when it comes to music and maybe Plutarch doesn't, doesn't either. Anyway, how about this one? Thino, in putting a cloak around about her exposed her arm, somebody exclaimed, a lovely arm, but not for the public, said she. Not only the arm of the virtuous woman, but her speech as well, ought to be not for the public, and she ought to be modest and guarded about saying anything in the hearing of outsiders, since it is an exposure of herself, for in her talk can be seen her feelings, character, and disposition. Phaedius made the Aphrodite of the aliens with one foot on a tortoise to typify for womankind keeping at home and keeping silence. For a woman ought to do her talking either to her husband or through her husband. And if and she should not feel aggrieved if, like the flute player, she makes a more impressive sound through a tongue not her own. Again, that's pretty self-explanatory. Women should be at home, um, in the house, silent, not seen in public. And if they are seen in public, seen with their husbands. And if they want to talk in public, to speak through their husband. Because to speak is to bear your soul, and that's the sole possession of your husband. And so that's not for other people to indulge in. So again, you, you get the idea, okay? This is, you know, this is the ideology. This, did, this isn't how it would have looked like for all women in, in, uh, in practice. Elite women would have said, to hell with this, I'm going to do my own thing. And for other women, the practical necessities of running the business would require her to be out in public speaking and, um, and just doing the job of the business, talking to other people, doing trading, whatever was required to keep the family alive. Women would have had to have been out in public doing these kinds of things. But what is expected, what a good woman, what the ideal woman should be like is this. This is what is required of her. Stay at home, be silent, only do something out in public in the company of your husband. So again, that's the ideal. That is what to be a good woman, that's what it looks like. To run counter to this is not impossible. Of course, you can do that, but it, it doesn't look as good. It doesn't bring you the same honor as it would if you looked more like this ideal that Plutarch sets out. And again, what you notice through everything that I've shown you so far is that it's all about him. All of this is deference to him. There's no instructions for him. He can do whatever he wants. And really that's the point here. The ancient husband could do whatever he wants. He could, um, well, I mean, he had the power of life and death over all of the family members. His court, his household court, could exile his wife if she was if she was to commit adultery. And even more generally, sexually, he has total liberty to have sex with whomever he pleases, whether it be his slaves or prostitutes or just other women in general. He has that total prerogative. Everything is about him. He can just effectively get away with whatever he wants. The only thing that's stopping him is not the the dignity of his marriage, or it's not the offense of his wife, it's the honor 
that he receives in, in the culture. If he acts in a way that diminishes his honour, well, that's a bad thing, but it's only bad because it reflects badly on him. Whatever he does is about his honour and therefore whatever the family does is also about his honour because he's the one who looks good when the family looks good. So he's the centrepiece. Again, I, I, come and I can't stress this enough. He is the focus of this whole organisation, this, this whole family unit. Okay, so that's our context. That's the ideological context. That's the understanding for the verse, wives submit to your husbands. Now, you're already probably getting a sense, hey, it probably wouldn't have come off as terribly controversial to say that. Wives submit to your husbands. It kind of sounds like that's the default setting for all people, like tell us something we don't know. But let's unpack it a little bit more. Let's look at some of the other things that the New Testament has to say about women, again, within this context, within this um, male-centric context where the woman is silent at home with with really no uh, with, with no ability to do anything beyond that. Just before we move on, I wanted to take a moment to say thank you very much for tuning in today. I really hope that this podcast has been helpful to you. And if it is, please consider giving it a review. Um, a five-star review would be absolutely fantastic for this for the podcast to be able to grow and to uh, to hopefully help other people. And if you'd like to consider uh, supporting the channel as well, you can find links for that in the description of this podcast below. So please consider that, uh, but otherwise enjoy the show. All right, so why don't we take a, a closer look then at some of the instructions that we find in the New Testament. Now, again, we always focus on wives having to submit to their husbands, but we often overlook some of the other controversial passages with regards to women. Now, I say not controversial for us because what Paul says in these verses uh, is really pretty standard for today, but in his time, this is the stuff that would have been controversial. So before I get to that, I want to just one more passage from our good friend Plutarch to give us a little bit of context to what Paul's about to say. So Plutarch, again, talking to our young bride, he says to her, the lawful wives of the Persian kings sit beside them at dinner and eat with them. But when the kings wish to be merry and get drunk, they send their wives away and send for their music girls and concubines. Insofar as they are right in what they do, because they do not concede any share in their licentiousness and debauchery to their wedded wives. If therefore a man in private life who is incontinent and dissolute in regard to his pleasures commits some peccadillo with a paramour or a maidservant, his wedded wife ought not to be indignant or angry, but she should reason that it is respect for her which leads him to share his debauchery, licentiousness and wantonness with another woman." Now, quick bit of context, when you go to a meal in the ancient world, you have the meal and then as you're eating, you're drinking lots of wine and then after the meal, you have the drinking party or the symposium. Now, the idea of the drinking party is that it's simply a drinking party. It's just where all of the wine comes out, you're getting raging drunk and you're being entertained by your host. Now, there's any number of different forms of entertainment that can happen at these meals. You could have a philosopher come and give a discourse on, well, marriage, for example. Um, you might have jugglers, you might have you know, circus acts, you might have any number of things that the, uh, that the host feels to entertain you with. But the most important or the most common uh, form of entertainment you're going to have at these symposiums are prostitutes. It's 
pretty standard that you're going to have a drinking and a sex party. That's just what the meal looks like. And this is a standard practice for ancient meals. This is why Paul is so angry at the Corinthians for having sex with prostitutes. Like, what are they doing, going down to a brothel? No, they're going to house parties. They're going over to their friend's place for dinner. And after dinner, everyone's having, quote unquote, after dinners. And that's just what you do. And so when you're a wife and your husband's going over to his friend's place for dinner, you know exactly what he's doing. There's no secret about this. It's just part of the culture. You're going to have sex with prostitutes. And so Plutarch turns around to this wife and she knows that her husband's going to do that, but he turns around and says, oh, he's doing you a favor when he does this, right? He's going to want to do terrible things to this prostitute Better him do it to her than to you. I mean, isn't that the sign of a loving husband? That rather than do terrible things to you in the bedroom, wouldn't it be better that he does it to somebody like a prostitute? Like, can't you see that this is what a good, loving husband is? Now, we recoil at this. What are you even talking about? This is just vile. But that's the culture. That's That's the world that they're swimming in. So this is what's expected of the husband and this is what the wife is just, she's going to tolerate it. Well, she's just going to accept it as being normal. That's what a husband does. But then look at what Paul says to the Corinthians. He says, 1 Corinthians 7 verse 1, Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Quick bit of context, chapter 6, he's just dealt with all of these men who are having sex with prostitutes. So he's Well, he's tried to deal with that situation, um, but now he's responding to a different group within the church. What's happened is that some of the men in the church have seen these other men go into these dinner parties who would obviously be the Gentiles in in the church, and probably the Jewish men in this situation have responded by saying, hey, Paul, you know what our solution is to not going to dinner parties and having sex with prostitutes? You know what it is? We're never gonna have sex again, right? We're just gonna go full abstinence, For the rest of our lives, that's going to be our response to this sexual immorality. And Paul's like, look, guys, I love your passion, right? Um, It's, yeah, all right, look, just that's good. Um, But maybe you've gone a bit too far. So where he says here, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, that's not actually Paul giving them instructions. He's not saying to them, never have sex again. He's actually quoting the men who have responded in this way. So they've turned around to Paul and said, our answer is that we'll never have sexual relations with a woman. Paul says, all right, how about I meet you halfway? Don't go and sleep with prostitutes, but maybe don't do abstinence. How about this? Paul says, he says, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have, quote unquote, have, right? Innuendo here. Each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. You go, and all the men went, hang on, did you just mention our wives? What is that? What? Like the problem here is that the men, um, you know, so therefore just have sex with your wife. Okay. Um, well, first of all, Paul, are you trying to say here that only have sex with my wife? Well, yeah, that's exactly what I'm saying as a matter of fact. Um, your sexual proclivities should all be directed towards her in the same way that hers should be directed towards him. So hang on a second, Paul, is your solution here monogamy? 
Yes, that's exactly what I'm saying here. Now, all the Jewish men would go, well, yeah, of course, we already do that, right? I mean, that's like adultery is one of the big ones. We don't we don't go there. The Gentile men are like, hang on a second. Are you saying here that I can only have sex with my wife? Yeah, that's that's exactly what I'm saying here. Um, I'm, I'm glad you picked up on that. But he doesn't stop there. He actually goes deeper into it. He says the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to the husband. Hang on, what rights does she have? What are you, what are you even talking about here, Paul? Uh, the, the rights that you entered into when you got married. Uh, you have, she has rights to you and you have rights to her. What are you even talking about? Ah, this, this is troubling. This is problematic. I mean, for the ideology that we've just laid out, this is a real problem. This is the offensive stuff. But he doesn't stop there. He says, for the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And all the men and the women in the room said, well, yeah, duh, of course. That's how it's always been. The wife doesn't have authority over her body. It's part of the household property. Of course. What are you, what are you even talking about? You don't even need to say that, Paul. We get that. He said, no, I'm not finished yet. I'm not finished. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. And all the Gentile men in the room just got up and left the room. Uh, you don't say this kind of stuff. This is totally antithetical to everything we understand about our rights within the marriage. We have the right to our wife's body. Of course we do, because I'm the man. What do you mean she has rights to my body? What are you even talking about here, Paul? What do you mean I have to serve and be subservient to her like some common slave? What are you... This is nuts. This is absolutely nuts. Now, 21st century, we go, well, yeah, duh, that's how marriage should look. First century, this is a problem. This is the offensive stuff that, well, ultimately got Paul rejected from Corinth. I mean, you know, I keep, I say this a lot, but there's a, there's a second Corinthians. Paul had to write a second letter to the Corinthians. The reason why he had to write a second letter to them was because the first letter didn't work. And part of the reason the first letter didn't work was because of stuff like this. So that's something of a sense of what this Christian ideology would have sounded like in the first century. It was problematic, but not in the way that it's problematic today. It was problematic in completely the different way. Um, the one who was the most challenged and the most offended by this was in fact the men. Okay, so with all of that said, let's get back to our a passage in Ephesians 5.22. But as with all things, we've set the historical context. We've talked about how it would have, um, what this, what the ideology of this world was. But to really understand it, we need to take a, few, a step back a few verses and get an idea of what the whole passage is saying, the whole literary context. So let's just start doing that, but starting from Ephesians 5.18. Okay, so... Ephesians 5.18 says, Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. All right, so a few things about the context of this. Number one, the Christian community, as we've talked about before, was a meal. When they got together, they had a meal in somebody's house. Now, the occupants that you're going to find in a house are a family. That shouldn't 
be terribly shocking. So when you talk about the early church, you're talking about a family, an actual family. The, the Christian community was built around existing family units. You would begin with one family and maybe add a number of families around them. Now, the reason why it's the whole family is because the way that you determine the gods of the family are always going to be determined by the husband. That's It's his house, and so the gods that we worship in this house are going to be the ones of his choosing. So that's standard. A wife is expected, as we're going to see in a moment, a wife is expected to come and conform to the gods of this particular household. So if you get the husband saved, if you get the head of the house saved, you're going to get everybody saved. If you remember from Acts where Cornelius becomes a Christian, he goes home and all of his household are baptized. <clears throat> you go, well, hang on. He was the only one that got saved. No, 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 you save him, you save the whole household. And this is the really important point that we have to recognize is that if you want to change a household, you've only got to change one person. you just got to change the CEO. Nobody else has a say in it. No one else has any ability to determine the, uh, the direction of the company. Only he can. So you don't have to try to, or it's not even... Uh, any point trying to change another member of the house, the children, the slaves, the the wife, because they can't change the dynamics of the company. The only person that can change that is the husband. So you get him saved and everybody's saved around them. So the church then meets in his house. Uh, it starts with a family and there might be a number of different families attached to this particular group. And that forms the nucleus of these little church communities. We're not talking about big mega churches. We're talking about small groups of a couple of families at the most meeting together in each other's places for meals. That's how church has been done. Now, I said, I talked a moment ago about the meal. You have the meal and then after the meal, you have the quote unquote after dinners, right? You have the drinking party where you get really, really drunk and typically you have sex. So the context then for this letter is that you've had the meal, we've come together for church, we've had our meal and now we come to the after dinners, right? Where we're doing the entertainment side of things. But what would... You, what would happen in the church setting, in the Christian meal, was that afterwards the entertainment was singing hymns or it was praying and prophesying or especially when we have one, reading one of Paul's letters. You might otherwise be reading some scripture, but you've got one of Paul's letters now and this is the time when it's going to be read out. These letters weren't written to be read individually by um, the members of the church by themselves because most people couldn't read. Most people were illiterate. The only way that this information could get to them is if somebody read it out for them. So somebody's going to read this letter out. We've had the meal. It's time to hear what Paul has to say, what instructions he gives to us. So in the context of that, this is the moment where you would normally otherwise be getting drunk. Paul says, all right, don't do the normal meal thing. Don't get drunk on wine which leads to debauchery, which, you know, what, I mean, well, the crazy part is that while Paul, while this letter's been read out at the meal, there's probably another meal just down the road, which is doing this thing, get, getting drunk on wine and getting involved in all sorts of debauchery. Paul says, all right, we're going to do it differently here. Don't do that. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Speak to one another in Psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. In other words, you know, pray and prophesy. Do, do all of those things that you would normally do sing and make music in your heart to the Lord whilst this letter is being read out. So it's part of the church service. Paul's saying, all right, at this moment in the meal, this is what's expected um, in, in practice. 
But then we were also dealing with a family. The people at the table are the family, right? Everyone in the family is there present. And so he turns back to those guys and say, in the context of living a life of praise to God and living a life that builds each other up, a life where you're seeking the best for everyone in the household, this is what it looks like in practical terms. This is, this is what's expected of you in a Christian community of one another. Well, first of all, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. See, when we focus on Ephesians 5.22, we, we only focus on Ephesians 5.22. In fact, some of your English Bibles are, are actually going to have a heading just before verse 22. It's actually going to separate 22 from verse 21. That is where... I mean, just there alone is where some of the problems begin because what it does is it creates this separate section as though verse 22 was this standalone unit of instruction that has no relation whatsoever to anything that's gone before it. That already is a problem. Verse 22 only makes sense in the context of verse 21 because it's effectively the rest of the sentence. You're really breaking up a sentence here. It's not even that it's a new um, new paragraph. I mean, this is this is the same instruction that's been given. So verse 22 only makes sense in the context of verse 21. And again, verse 21 says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Then who's the one another? Well, everyone in the room, everyone in the family, submit to one another. Everyone has to submit to each other. Everyone has to serve each other, love each other the way that Christ loves each other, because that's what the Christian community is about. It's about serving. Everyone serves each other. Then he says, wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands. Right. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands. Well, for the wives in the ancient world, as we've seen, this is pretty obvious, their response would be, well, thank you, Captain Obvious. Any other good instruction? Any other good advice? Breathe oxygen, for example? Duh, what else are we going to do? But here again is something we don't notice in our English translations. The fact that in verse 22, the word submit isn't actually there. We read in the English, wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands. The word submit is simply not there in the Greek. It's just not. It doesn't need to be because the submit is provided by verse 21. Submit to one another. Then the Greek literally reads, wives, to your own husbands. That's all it says. And we go, well, hang on. What's the instruction? Well, submit. How do you know? Well, because it's given to us in verse 21. So you can't separate verse 22 from verse 21 because verse 22 only makes sense because the verb is brought from verse 21. So why submit yourself to your own husbands? Well, first of all, it's not there, but he's simply outworking submit. Submit to one another, wives to your husbands. The implication, the, the obvious implication being husbands too submit to your wives. It's mutual submission. It's not one submission for one person and not the other. Everybody has to submit wives to your husbands. And so the wives are going, all right, um, anything else you want to tell us that like, what else are we going to do? For her, this is the default setting. This is just status quo. But Paul goes on and he actually says, 
do this, submit to your husbands as you do to the Lord. You're like, well, hang on, I'm going to do it anyway. I'm always I'm already going to submit for all these different reasons. I'm 10 years younger than the guy. I, I run the household. I look after the children. If uh, if I don't submit, like he's he's providing for me. I'm totally reliant on him anyway. He's the he's the head of the company. I mean, all these reasons I'm going to be submitting to him anyway. So nothing at all changes one single bit. But now he's saying, actually, just do it as though you would do it to the Lord. You're going to do this anyway. You have no choice in the matter. But how about you do it as an act of worship? How about you do it as a service to God? Turn it into a ministry. Again, you're going to do it anyway. Why not make it a ministry? Now, for us, that's sort of like, well, when you go to work today, which you're going to do anyway because you have to go to work, you have to pay the bills, you're going to be there anyway. But while you're there, why don't you pretend that this is your ministry? Why don't you do this in a way that you're doing it for God and not just the boss? You're going to do it anyway. All you're doing is doing it with a bit of a different attitude. You're doing it as an act of worship, as an act of ministry that, well, you're going to do the work anyway, but what if, why not just make it something different? So do, do this, wives. Do it as though you're doing it to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives submit to their own husbands in everything. Well, again, this is just status quo. That is the default setting for every marriage. He's the CEO of the company. And in the same way that Christ is head of the church, well, nothing changes there. And so the way that we submit to Christ, we'll just submit to your husbands. Again, he's the boss. You know, it's like going to work and saying you submit to your boss. It's just what you do. You're going to do that anyway. So absolutely nothing whatsoever changes for the wife, which makes sense because if you're going to change an ancient family, you're not going to change it through the wife. She has no ability to change the dynamics of the company. The only person that can change that is the husband. So then he goes on to address the husband. He says, husbands love your wives. Now, I've, had, I've heard instruction before to say, well, the wife has to submit to the husband and the husband only has to love the wife. They're two different instructions. No, they're not. Verse 21 says, submit to one another. Everyone has to submit to one another. So why doesn't he say to the husbands? He doesn't need to. He just said to them, submit to one another, submit to your wives. And the fact is he probably lost the male audience the minute he said, submit to one another. They'd be like, hang on a second. Did you just say, did what? What are you even talking about? So wives are like, yeah, okay, nothing's changed there. But did he just say everyone submit to one another? Yeah, I think that's what he said. They probably would have been distracted as well. But then he goes on to the husbands. Now, did you notice he addressed the wives first? Now, you never, 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 never address a wife before a husband. He's the boss. He's the head of the company. You address him first. And yet he's addressed the wives before the husbands. So even rhetorically, he's been made subservient to her. She gets first address, he gets made under her. He says, husbands, don't just submit to your wives, but love them as well. Now, if you look in, if you look in your Bibles, if you look at the amount of instruction that's given to the wife, you've got three verses for the wife, and yet for the husbands, you've got eight verses. He gets multiples of the instruction. The one who has to change everything is him. She changes nothing. All she does is maybe just take a different attitude to what she was already going to do. The husband, on the other hand, well, let's see what, what, what Paul has to say to him. Firstly, husbands love your wives. Agape love. 
like that love that is just very unusual in ancient Greek. You just you don't really talk about agape love, particularly in a context where the whole goal is concordia. Remember Pliny? Oh, my, my wife loves me because she serves me and she lives for my glory. That's the only love that's expected in the marriage. Otherwise, it's concordia. Husbands, no, no, no. Agape love your wives. What does that mean, Paul? Glad you asked. Just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make a holy, cleansing her by the washing with the water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. How did Christ love the church? He died for her. He died on the cross. That's how he showed his love for his bride. You need to show that same love for her. You have to die for her. So all of your ambitions, all of your fame, all of the things that you're striving for, and her being the means to the end of that, her job being to give, to glorify you and help establish your glory. No, no, no. All that goes away. You instead die for her. When Jesus came, he wasn't looking to be glorified by anyone. In fact, he went to the cross and did the very opposite of being glorified. That's what you need to do now for your wife. All of it gets laid down for her. And the, the and metaphoric language that he uses here, like washing her, washing with, um, with, with water through the word, um, presenting her as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or blemish or holy this is all servant language. This is what servants do. What does a servant do? A servant cleans clothes. A servant washes things, right? The servant is the one who keeps the house clean. It's slaves. It's the wife. It's, that's their role. No, no, no. You husbands now take on that same role. And you could even read literally into this to suggest that what he's saying is help around the house too. Do a bit of the housework as well while you're at it. Right, I mean, everything now for the husband, well, it's all about her. He has to lay it down to build her up. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one has ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about church, about Christ and the church. However, each of you must also love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Again, just throw that one in at the end. Thank you, Captain Obvious. But boy, oh boy, the husband's really getting getting screwed over here. You know, the crazy part about this whole passage is that we read it in the 21st century and all the women go, what are you talking about? We have to submit to the, to the husbands. How crazy, how backwards is this? <laughs> Put this back in the first century and the husbands are going, what are you even talking about? What do you mean we have to love our wives and serve their... Ah. They're the ones who would have been offended by this, not the other way around. This is really backwards radical stuff that Paul is expecting of them here. So again, the wife, well, she changes nothing. Absolutely nothing about her life changes one iota. The husband, on the other hand, everything has to change. He's the head of the company. He changes everything, first about himself and then his attitude towards the rest of the members of the household. So this is pretty crazy stuff. I think I've, I've made that point fairly clear. 
But let me throw out one more, which is along similar lines. Uh, and we always focus on the Ephesians passage, but there's another one that we find in First Peter, which says something similar. But again, let's let's put this into a bit of context. All right. So quickly, from just one one last one from Plutarch. So he says to this wife again, a wife ought not to make friends of her own, but to enjoy her husband's friends in common with him. The gods are the first and most important friends. Wherefore, it is becoming for a wife to worship and to know only the gods that a husband believes in and to shut the front door tight upon all queer rituals and outlandish superstitions. Who's he talking about there? He's talking about the Christians. The Christians were seen as a weird superstition. So he's actually got Christians in mind here. For with no God do stealthy and secret rites performed by a woman find any favor. So in other words, a good wife worships the same gods as a husband and she doesn't go off and worship these secretive groups and meetings and gods that no one really knows what's going on behind closed doors, right? She doesn't put herself in a situation that can raise questions about her husband's sovereignty over her. That's just not something that you you, you can really get away with. So... That's Plutarch's instruction to her. But look what happens here in 1 Peter 2. First of all, he says, Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every <clears throat> every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing, you, uh, that, uh, by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. <clears throat> Live as God's slaves, show proper respect to everyone, love the family of believers, fear God, honor the emperor. Okay, so I just I read that just for the quick bit of context. What he's saying here is recognize worldly institutions, right? Especially those ones that are closely watched. Okay, so honor the emperor as he deserves to be honored. All of these human institutions that are set up to keep the society ordered and functioning live according to those, if only so that you don't raise unnecessary suspicion around the group. You don't want to be seen to be seditious. That's the, I mean, that's the worst possible thing you can be. And we don't want to be seen as a community that fosters sedition, that fosters ideas that will overthrow the empire, overthrow the society. Okay. So that's how you all need to live and recognizing these human institutions then he goes on, wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands. Okay, so hang on a second. He's just said that in the context of human institutions, including this marriage idea, right? This idea, the, or at least the very least, the way that the marriage is structured, this idea that the husband is the, the head and the boss over everybody, that is a very worldly sort of way to do things. That's the way the world structures the society around the husband being the head of the, the of the wife and the rest of the family. That's what's expected in the same way that the emperor has authority over the empire. So all of that is what the world expects. And to challenge that as the, that that's the centerpiece of society to challenge that is to be seditious, right? So we don't want to be seen to be doing that, especially unnecessarily. So wives in this context, in this very paranoid empire context, just submit yourselves to your husbands so that <clears throat> so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives when they see the purity and reverence of their lives. Why? Hang on a second. So in this particular situation, we find wives whose husbands aren't Christians. 
right? Because the goal here is to get them saved. They mustn't be Christians. You go, hang on a second. I thought the husband set the tone. The husband gets saved and everybody gets saved. That's right. But in this case, we've got some women here who are Christians independently of their husbands. Now, this is all sorts of problematic because, well, first of all, what it's saying to everybody else is that the husband can't keep his wife under control because she's worshipping these foreign gods. So that's a problem for him, and that's a huge problem for his status. Already there's going to be suspicion around her, around him, around this whole family because, well, she should be in line with whatever her husband believes, but she's not. More than that, she's part of this weird outlandish superstition which requires its members to go to somebody's private house and be instructed by men that aren't their husbands. Now, why are the women going in there in the first place? I mean, if if the New Testament and Christian community was so um, uh, patriarchal and so antithetical to women, then why on earth would a woman want to be there by herself? I mean, if she's been dragged along to this patriarchal institution, I could understand that would make sense if it was patriarchal and if it was all about the men, and she's getting dragged along by her husband, that would make sense. I would get that. No, no, no. These women are going by themselves. They're taking the risk and they're jeopardizing their husband's reputation to go to these Christian meetings without him. This is crazy, crazy stuff. So if, I mean, that's got to say something about the appeal that these particular communities had to the women, if nothing else. So what Peter says here is, look, okay, just honor your husband, right? Or or, or submit to him in the way that is expected so that he could look at you in the way that you serve, the way that you submit and say, maybe there's something about this Christian community. Maybe these guys aren't what everyone says that they are. Maybe there's something a bit different about them. Or at the very least, they're not seditious. Maybe there's something that would become appealing to the husband because actually the bigger picture here in this context is salvation, especially his salvation. So how does this look? Well, this is where he finishes up and this is where we'll finish up. Verse 3, your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold, jewelry, or fine clothes. Rather, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. For this is the way the holy women of the past who put their hope in God used to adorn themselves. They submitted themselves to their own husbands, like Sarah, who obeyed Abraham and called him her Lord." You are her daughters if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. So the way that she's to do this is just to be a typical ancient wife. Don't try to stand out. Don't try to, um, you know, be be obnoxious. Don't try to be out there in your character because that's not what's expected of any women. So just again, don't give the impression that we're the sort of community that fosters sedition, that fosters antithetical ideas to the standard world order. Just don't do that. And as, as much as you might want to, as much as you feel like you might have, you've got the independent right to be able to do that, that's not how it works in this world. So let's not do that because the bigger picture here is salvation. And if it means that he might be saved by your behavior around him, Well, that's far more important in this particular context. 
I think we're going to have to unpack this passage in a future podcast. There's a whole lot more going on in here because this actually corresponds to um, a ho- some similar instructions uh, in First Timothy. So let's put this off for another day. We'll come back to this at a later stage. But for now, we'll we'll call it a day. Um, I hope this has been helpful. I hope this is something of a, a sort of a, a helpful context and understanding of at least the role of wives in the ancient world. And finally, next week, we're going to look at uh, the last part of this series where we look at the role of women in the church and especially their role of teaching. What does the Bible really say about that, especially that really controversial verse in Timothy that seems to indicate that wives can't teach men? What's really going on there? Well, join me for that next week and we'll get into it. Otherwise, have a great week, all the best, and I'll see you next week.